You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to Oleander Book Club. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. I'm whispering because I am not only hosting this show and recording, but I'm also trying to um, supervise children while they're learning. So, hey, um, multitasking, failing? I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, hey, here's some more uh, Lupin. Saint Lupin, gentleman, burglar by Maurice Leblanche. Part three, I think it is. So, yeah. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Rate, review, subscribe, and I don't know. If, if you have any suggestions on any books you'd like to hear, any public domain stories out there you think would be great, and you want to engage in with the book club, just let us know. Uh, rate, review, subscribe. 11.30 a.m. KZOM, Oleander, Oregon. Look for us on Facebook. And I think we've got an Instagram. I can't remember. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 3. The Escape of Arsène Lupin. Part 2. The following facts were at once established by an examination of the prison records. Eight weeks before, a man named Baudreux Désiré had slept at the depot. He was released the next day, and left the depot at two o'clock in the afternoon. On the same day at two o'clock, having been examined for the last time, Arsène Lupin left the depot in a prison van. Had the guards made a mistake? Had they been deceived by the resemblance and carelessly substituted this man for their prisoner? Another question suggested itself. Had the substitution been arranged in advance? In that event, Baudreux must have been an accomplice and must have caused his own arrest for the express purpose of taking Lupin's place. But then, by what miracle had such a plan, based on a series of improbable chances, been carried to success? Baudreux Désiré was turned over to the anthropological service. They had never seen anything like him. However, they easily traced his past history. He was known at Courbevoie, at Asnières, and at Le Valois. He lived on alms and slept in one of those rag-pickers huts near the barrier de Terne. He had disappeared from there a year ago. Had he been enticed away by Arsène Lupin? There was no evidence to that effect and even if that was so, it did not explain the flight of the prisoner. That still remained a mystery. Amongst twenty theories which sought to explain it, not one was satisfactory. Of the escape itself, there was no doubt, an escape that was incomprehensible, sensational, in which the public, as well as the officers of the law, could detect a carefully prepared plan, a combination of circumstances marvelously dovetailed, whereof the denouement fully justified the confident prediction of Arsène Lupin, I shall not be present at my trial. After a month of patient investigation, the problem remained unsolved. The poor devil of a Baudreux could not be kept in prison indefinitely, and to place him on trial would be ridiculous. There was no charge against him. Consequently, he was released, but the chief of the Sûreté resolved to keep him under surveillance. This idea originated with Ganimard. From his point of view, there was neither complicity nor chance. Baudreux was an instrument upon which Arsène Lupin had played with his extraordinary skill. 
Baudreux, when sent at liberty, would lead them to Arsène Lupin, or at least to some of his accomplices. The two inspectors, Follenfant and Duzzi, were assigned to assist Ganimard. One foggy morning in January, the prison gates opened, and Baudreux Désiré stepped forth, a free man. At first he appeared to be quite embarrassed, and walked like a person who has no precise idea whither he is going. He followed the Rue de la Santé and the Rue Saint-Jacques. He stopped in front of an old clothes shop, removed his jacket and his vest, sold his vest on which he realized a few sous, then, replacing his jacket, he proceeded on his way. He crossed the Seine. At the Châtelet an omnibus passed him. He wished to enter it, but there was no place. The controller advised him to secure a number, so he entered the waiting-room. Ganimard called to his two assistants, and without removing his eyes from the waiting-room, he said to them, "'Stop a carriage. No, two. That will be better. I will go with one of you, and we will follow him.' The men obeyed. Yet Baudreux did not appear. Ganimard entered the waiting-room. It was empty. "'Idiot that I am,' he muttered. "'I forgot there was another exit.' There was an interior corridor extending from the waiting-room to the Rue Saint-Martin. Ganimard rushed through it and arrived just in time to observe Baudreux upon the top of the Batignolles Jardin de Plate omnibus as it was turning the corner of the Rue de Rivoli. He ran and caught the omnibus, but he had lost his two assistants. He must continue the pursuit alone. In his anger he was inclined to seize the man by the collar without ceremony. Was it not with premeditation and by means of an ingenious ruse that his pretended imbecile had separated him from his assistants? He looked at Baudreux. The latter was asleep on the bench, his head rolling from side to side, his mouth half-opened, and an incredible expression of stupidity on his blotched face. No, such an adversary was incapable of deceiving old Ganimard. It was a stroke of luck, nothing more. At the Galerie Lafayette, the man leapt from the omnibus and took the La Muette tramway, following the boulevard Haussmann and the avenue Victor Hugo. Baudreux alighted at La Muette station, and with a nonchalant air, strolled into the Bois de Boulogne. He wandered through one path after another, and sometimes retraced his steps. What was he seeking? Had he any definite object? At the end of an hour, he appeared to be faint from fatigue, and noticing a bench, he sat down. The spot, not far from Auteuil, on the edge of a pond hidden amongst the trees, was absolutely deserted. After the lapse of another half-hour, Ganimard became impatient and resolved to speak to the man. He approached and took a seat beside Baudreux, lighted a cigarette, traced some figures in the sand with the end of his cane, and said, "'It's a pleasant day.' No response. But suddenly the man burst into laughter, a happy, mirthful laugh, spontaneous and irresistible. Ganimard felt his hair stand on end, in horror and surprise. It was that laugh, that infernal laugh he knew so well. With a sudden movement, he seized the man by the collar and looked at him with a keen, penetrating gaze, and found that he no longer saw the man Baudreux. To be sure, he saw Baudreux, but at the same time he saw the other, the real man, Lupin. He discovered the intense life in the eyes, he filled up the shrunken features, he perceived the real flesh beneath the flabby skin, the real mouth through the grimaces that deformed it. 
those were the eyes and mouth of the other and especially his keen alert mocking expression so clear and youthful arsène lupin arsène lupin he stammered then in a sudden fit of rage he seized lupin by the throat and tried to hold him down in spite of his fifty years he still possessed unusual strength whilst his adversary was apparently in a weak condition but the struggle was a brief one arsene lupin made only a slight movement and as suddenly as he had made the attack ganimard released his hold his right arm fell inert useless if you had taken lessons in jiu-jitsu at the quai des orfèvres said lupin you would know that that blow is called udishigi in japanese a second more and i would have broken your arm and that would have been just what you deserve i am surprised that you an old friend whom i respect and before whom i voluntarily expose my incognito should abuse my confidence in that violent manner it is unworthy ah oh, what's the matter ganimard did not reply that escape for which he deemed himself responsible was it not he ganimard who by his sensational evidence had led the court into serious error that escape appeared to him like a dark cloud on his professional career a tear rolled down his cheek to his grey moustache oh mon dieu ganimard don't take it to heart if you had not spoken i would have arranged for someone else to do it i couldn't allow poor baudru desire to be convicted then murmured ganimard it was you that was there and now you are here it is i always i only i can it be possible oh it is not the work of a sorcerer simply as the judge remarked at the trial the apprenticeship of a dozen years that equips a man to cope successfully with all the obstacles in life but your face your eyes you can understand that if i worked eighteen months with dr altier at the st louis hospital it was not out of love for the work i considered that he who would one day have the honour of calling himself arsene lupin ought to be exempt from the ordinary laws governing appearance and identity appearance that can be modified at will for instance a hypodermic injection of paraffin will puff up the skin at the desired spot pyrogallic acid will change your skin to that of an indian the juice of the greater celandine will adorn you with the most beautiful eruptions and tumours another chemical affects the growth of your beard and hair another changes the tone of your voice add to that two months of dieting in cell twenty-four exercises repeated a thousand times to enable me to hold my features in a certain grimace to carry my head at a certain inclination and adapt my back and shoulders to a stooping posture then five drops of atropine in the eyes to make them haggard and wild and the trick is done i do not understand how you deceived the guards the change was progressive the evolution was so gradual that they failed to notice it but baudreux desire baudreux exists he is a poor harmless fellow whom i met last year and really he bears a certain resemblance to me considering my arrest as a possible event i took charge of baudreux and studied the points wherein we differed in appearance with a view to correct them in my own person my friends caused him to remain at the depot overnight and to leave there next day about the same hour as i did a coincidence easily arranged of course it was necessary to have a record of his detention at the depot in order to establish the fact that such a person was a reality 
otherwise the police would have sought elsewhere to find out my identity but in offering to them this excellent baudreux it was inevitable you understand inevitable that they would seize upon him and despite the insurmountable difficulties of a substitution they would prefer to believe in a substitution than confess their ignorance yes yes of course said ganimard and then exclaimed arsene lupin i held in my hands a trump card an anxious public watching and waiting for my escape and that is the fatal error into which you fell you and the others in the course of that fascinating game pending between me and the officers of the law wherein the stake was my liberty and you suppose that i was playing to the gallery that i was intoxicated with my success i arsene lupin guilty of such weakness oh no and no longer ago than the caon affair you said when arsene lupin cries from the housetops that he will escape he has some object in view but sapristi you must understand that in order to escape i must create in advance a public belief in that escape a belief amounting to an article of faith an absolute conviction a reality as glittering as the sun and i did create that belief that arsene lupin would escape that arsene lupin would not be present at his trial and when you gave your evidence and said that man is not arsene lupin everybody was prepared to believe you had one person doubted it had any one uttered this simple restriction suppose it is arsene lupin from that moment i was lost if any one had scrutinized my face not imbued with the idea that i was not arsene lupin as you and the others did at my trial but with the idea that i might be arsene lupin then despite all my precautions i should have been recognized but i had no fear logically psychologically no one could entertain the idea that i was arsene lupin he grasped ganimard's hand come ganimard confess that on the wednesday after our conversation in the prison de la sante you expected me at your house at four o'clock exactly as i said i would go and your prison van said ganimard evading the question a bluff some of my friends secured that old unused van and wished to make the attempt but i considered it impractical without the concurrence of a number of unusual circumstances however i found it useful to carry out that attempted escape and give it the widest publicity an audaciously planned escape though not completed gave to the succeeding one the character of reality simply by anticipation so that the cigar hollowed by myself as well as the knife and the letters written by me and the mysterious correspondent did not exist ganimard reflected a moment then said when the anthropological service had baudreux's case under consideration why did they not perceive that his measurements coincided with those of arsene lupin my measurements are not in existence indeed at least they are false i have given considerable attention to that question in the first place the bertillon system records the visible marks of identification and you have seen that they are not infallible and after that the measurements of the head the fingers the ears etc of course such measurements are more or less infallible absolutely no but it costs money to get around them before we left america one of the employees of the service there accepted so much money to insert false figures in my measurements 
Consequently, Baudreux's measurements should not agree with those of Arsène Lupin. After a short silence, Ganimard asked, "'What are you going to do now?' "'Now,' replied Lupin, "'I am going to take a rest, enjoy the best of food and drink, and gradually recover my former healthy condition. It is all very well to become Baudreux or some other person, on occasion, and to change your personality as you do your shirt. But you soon grow weary of the change. I feel exactly as I imagine the man who lost his shadow must have felt, and I shall be glad to be Arsène Lupin once more. He walked to and fro for a few minutes, then stopping in front of Ganimard, he said, "'You have nothing more to say, I suppose?' "'Yes, I should like to know if you intend to reveal the true state of facts connected with your escape, the mistake that I made. Oh, no one will ever know that it was Arsène Lupin who was discharged. It is to my own interest to surround myself with mystery, and therefore I shall permit my escape to retain its almost miraculous character. So have no fear on that score, my dear friend. I shall say nothing. And now, good-bye. I am going out to dinner this evening.' and have only sufficient time to dress. I thought you wanted to rest. Oh, there are duties to society that one cannot avoid. Tomorrow I shall rest. Where do you dine tonight? With the British ambassador. End of chapter 3 The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc Chapter 4 The Mysterious Traveller the evening before, I had sent my automobile to Rouen by the highway. I was to travel to Rouen by rail, on my way to visit some friends that live on the banks of the Seine. At Paris, a few minutes before the train started, seven gentlemen entered my compartment. Five of them were smoking. No matter that the journey was a short one, the thought of travelling with such a company was not agreeable to me, especially as the car was built on the old model, without a corridor. I picked up my overcoat, my newspapers, and my timetable, and sought refuge in a neighbouring compartment. It was occupied by a lady who, at sight of me, made a gesture of annoyance that did not escape my notice, and she leaned toward a gentleman who was standing on the step and was, no doubt, her husband. The gentleman scrutinized me closely, and apparently my appearance did not displease him, for he smiled as he spoke to his wife with the air of one who reassures a frightened child. She smiled also, and gave me a friendly glance as if she now understood that I was one of those gallant men with whom a woman can remain shut up for two hours in a little box six feet square, and have nothing to fear. Her husband said to her, "'I have an important appointment, my dear,' and cannot wait any longer. Adieu. He kissed her affectionately and went away. His wife threw him a few kisses and waved her handkerchief. The whistle sounded and the train started. At that precise moment, and despite the protests of the guards, the door was opened and a man rushed into our compartment. My companion, who was standing and arranging her luggage, uttered a cry of terror and fell upon the seat. I am not a coward, far from it, but I confess that such intrusions at the last minute are always disconcerting. They have a suspicious, unnatural aspect. However, the appearance of the new arrival greatly modified the unfavorable impression produced by his precipitant action. He was correctly and elegantly dressed, 
wore a tasteful cravat, correct gloves, and his face was refined and intelligent. But where the devil had I seen that face before? Because, beyond all possible doubt, I had seen it. And yet the memory of it was so vague and indistinct that I felt it would be useless to try to recall it at that time. Then, directing my attention to the lady, I was amazed at the pallor and anxiety I saw in her face. She was looking at her neighbor, they occupied seats on the same side of the compartment, with an expression of intense alarm, and I perceived that one of her trembling hands was slowly gliding toward a little traveling bag that was lying on the seat about twenty inches from her. She finished by seizing it and nervously drawing it to her. Our eyes met, and I read in hers so much anxiety and fear that I could not refrain from speaking to her. "'Are you ill, madame? Shall I open the window?' Her only reply was a gesture indicating that she was afraid of our companion. I smiled, as her husband had done, shrugged my shoulders, and explained to her in pantomime that she had nothing to fear, that I was there, and besides, the gentleman appeared to be a very harmless individual.' At that moment he turned toward us, scrutinized both of us from head to foot, then settled down in his corner and paid us no more attention. After a short silence, the lady, as if she had mustered all her energy to perform a desperate act, said to me in an almost inaudible voice, "'Do you know who is on our train?' "'Who?' "'He... he... I assure you... Who is he? Arsène Lupin. She had not taken her eyes off our companion, and it was to him rather than to me that she uttered the syllables of that disquieting name. He drew his hat over his face. Was that to conceal his agitation, or simply to arrange himself for sleep? Then I said to her, Yesterday, through contumacy, Arsène Lupin was sentenced to twenty years' imprisonment at hard labor. Therefore, it is improbable that he would be so imprudent today as to show himself in public. Moreover, the newspapers have announced his appearance in Turkey since his escape from the Santé. But he is on this train at the present moment, the lady proclaimed, with the obvious intention of being heard by our companion. My husband is one of the directors in the penitentiary service, and it was the stationmaster himself who told us that a search was being made for Arsène Lupin. They may have been mistaken. No, he was seen in the waiting room. He bought a first-class ticket for Rouen. He has disappeared. The guard at the waiting room door did not see him pass, and it is supposed that he had got into the express that leaves ten minutes after us. In that case, they will be sure to catch him. Unless at the last moment he leapt from that train to come here, into our train, which is quite probable, which is almost certain. If so, he will be arrested just the same, for the employees and guards would no doubt observe his passage from one train to the other, and when we arrive at Rouen, they will arrest him there. Him? Never. He will find some means of escape. In that case, I wish him bon voyage. But in the meantime, think what he may do. What? I don't know. He may do anything. She was greatly agitated, and truly the situation justified to some extent her nervous excitement. I was impelled to say to her, Of course, there are many strange coincidences, but you need have no fear. 
admitting that Arsène Lupin is on this train, he will not commit any indiscretion. He will be only too happy to escape the peril that already threatens him. My words did not reassure her, but she remained silent for a time. I unfolded my newspapers and read reports of Arsène Lupin's trial, but as they contained nothing that was new to me, I was not greatly interested. Moreover, I was tired and sleepy. I felt my eyelids close and my head drop. But, monsieur, you are not going to sleep. She seized my newspaper and looked at me with indignation. Certainly not, I said. That would be very imprudent. Of course, I assented. I struggled to keep awake. I looked through the window at the landscape and the fleeting clouds, but in a short time all that became confused and indistinct. The image of the nervous lady and the drowsy gentleman were effaced from my memory, and I was buried in the soothing depths of a profound sleep. The tranquillity of my response was soon disturbed by disquieting dreams, wherein a creature that had played the part and bore the name of Arsène Lupin held an important place. He appeared to me with his back laden with articles of value. He leapt over walls and plundered castles. But the outlines of that creature, who was no longer Arsène Lupin, assumed a more definite form. He came toward me, growing larger and larger, leapt into the compartment with incredible agility, and landed squarely on my chest. With a cry of fright and pain, I awoke. The man, the traveller, our companion, with his knee on my breast, held me by the throat. My sight was very indistinct, for my eyes were suffused with blood. I could see the lady in a corner of the compartment convulsed with fright. I tried even not to resist. Besides, I did not have the strength. My temples throbbed. I was almost strangled. One minute more, and I would have breathed my last. The man must have realized it, for he relaxed his grip, but did not remove his hand. Then he took a cord in which he had prepared a slipknot and tied my wrists together. In an instant I was bound, gagged, and helpless. Certainly he accomplished the trick with an ease and skill that revealed the hand of a master. He was no doubt a professional thief. Not a word, not a nervous movement, only coolness and audacity. And I was there, lying on the bench, bound like a mummy. I, Arsène Lupin! It was anything but a laughing matter, and yet, despite the gravity of the situation, I keenly appreciated the humor and irony that it involved. Arsène Lupin seized and bound like a novice, robbed as if I were an unsophisticated rustic, for you must understand the scoundrel had deprived me of my purse and wallet. Arsène Lupin, a victim, duped, vanquished. What an adventure! The lady did not move. He did not even notice her. He contented himself with picking up her traveling bag that had fallen to the floor and taking from it the jewels, purse, and gold and silver trinkets that it contained. The lady opened her eyes, trembled with fear, drew the rings from her fingers, and handed them to the man as if she wished to spare him unnecessary trouble. He took the rings and looked at her. She swooned. Then, quite unruffled, he resumed his seat, lighted a cigarette, and proceeded to examine the treasure that he had acquired. The examination appeared to give him perfect satisfaction. But I was not so well satisfied. 
I do not speak of the twelve thousand francs of which I had been unduly deprived. That was only a temporary loss, because I was certain that I would recover possession of that money after a very brief delay, together with the important papers contained in my wallet, plans, specifications, addresses, lists of correspondence, and compromising letters. But for the moment, a more immediate and more serious question troubled me. How would this affair end? What would be the outcome of this adventure? As you can imagine, the disturbance created by my passage through the Saint-Lazare station has not escaped my notice. Going to visit friends who knew me under the name of Guillaume Berlat, and amongst whom my resemblance to Arsène Lupin was a subject of many innocent jests, I could not assume a disguise, and my presence had been remarked. So beyond question, the commissary of police at Rouen, notified by telegraph and assisted by numerous agents, would be awaiting the train, would question all suspicious passengers, and proceed to search the cars. Of course, I had foreseen all that, but it had not disturbed me, as I was certain that the police of Rouen would not be any shrewder than the police of Paris, and that I could escape recognition. Would it not be sufficient for me to carelessly display my card as député, thanks to which I had inspired complete confidence in the gatekeeper at Saint-Lazare? but the situation was greatly changed. I was no longer free. It was impossible to attempt one of my usual tricks. In one of the compartments, the commissary of police would find Monsieur Arsène Lupin, bound hand and foot, as docile as a lamb, packed up, all ready to be dumped into a prison van. He would have simply to accept delivery of the parcel, the same as if it were so much merchandise or a basket of fruit and vegetables." Yet, to avoid that shameful denouement, what could I do, bound and gagged as I was? And the train was rushing on toward Rouen, the next and only station. Another problem was presented, in which I was less interested, but the solution of which aroused my professional curiosity. What were the intentions of my rascally companion? Of course, if I had been alone, he could, on our arrival at Rouen, leave the car slowly and fearlessly. But the lady? As soon as the door of the compartment should be opened, the lady, now so quiet and humble, would scream and call for help. That was the dilemma that perplexed me. Why had he not reduced her to a helpless condition similar to mine? That would have given him ample time to disappear before his double crime was discovered. He was still smoking, with his eyes fixed upon the window that was now being streaked with drops of rain. Once he turned, picked up my timetable, and consulted it. The lady had to feign a continued lack of consciousness in order to deceive the enemy, but fits of coughing provoked by the smoke exposed her true condition. As to me, I was very uncomfortable and very tired, and I meditated, I plotted. The train was rushing on joyously, intoxicated with its own speed. St. Etienne... At that moment, the man arose and took two steps toward us, which caused the lady to utter a cry of alarm and fall into a genuine swoon. What was the man about to do? He lowered the window on our side. A heavy rain was now falling, and by a gesture, the man expressed his annoyance at his not having an umbrella or an overcoat. He glanced at the rack. The lady's umbrella was there. He took it. He also took my overcoat and put it on. We were now crossing the Seine. He turned up the bottoms of his trousers, then leaned over and raised the exterior latch of the door. 
was he going to throw himself upon the track? At that speed it would have been instant death. We now entered a tunnel. The man opened the door halfway and stood on the upper step. What folly! The darkness, the smoke, the noise, all gave a fantastic appearance to his actions. But suddenly the train diminished its speed. A moment later it increased its speed, then slowed up again. Probably some repairs were being made in that part of the tunnel which obliged the trains to diminish their speed, and the man was aware of the fact. He immediately stepped down to the lower step, closed the door behind him, and leapt to the ground. He was gone. The lady immediately recovered her wits, and her first act was to lament the loss of her jewels. I gave her an imploring look. She understood and quickly removed the gag that stifled me. She wished to untie the cords that bound me, but I prevented her. No, no, the police must see everything exactly as it stands. I want them to see what the rascal did to us. Suppose I pull the alarm bell. Too late. You should have done that when he made the attack on me. But he would have killed me. Oh, monsieur, didn't I tell you that he was on this train? I recognized him from his portrait, and now he has gone off with my jewels. Don't worry, the police will catch him. Catch Arsène Lupin? Never. That depends on you, madame. Listen. When we arrive at Rouen, be at the door and call. Make a noise. The police and the railway employees will come. Tell what you have seen. The assault made on me and the flight of Arsène Lupin. Give a description of him. Soft hat, umbrella. Yours. Grey overcoat. Yours, said she. What? Mine? Oh, not at all. It was his. I didn't have any. It seems to me he didn't have one when he came in. Yes, yes, unless the coat was one that someone had forgotten and left in the rack. At all events, he had it when he went away, and that is the essential point. A grey overcoat, remember. Oh, I forgot. You must tell your name. First thing you do, your husband's official position will stimulate the zeal of the police. We arrived at the station. I gave her some further instructions in a rather imperious tone. Tell them my name, Guillaume Berlat. If necessary, say that you know me. That will save time. We must expedite the preliminary investigation. The important thing is the pursuit of Arsène Lupin. Your jewels, remember. Let there be no mistake. Guillaume Berlat, a friend of your husband. I understand. Guillaume Berlat. She was already calling and gesticulating. As soon as the train stopped, several men entered the compartment. The critical moment had come. Panting for breath, the lady exclaimed, Arsène Lupin! He attacked us! He stole my jewels! I am Madame Renault! My husband is a director of the penitentiary service! Ah! Oh, here is my brother, Georges Ardell, director of the Crédit Rouennais! You must know! She embraced a young man who had just joined us, and whom the commissary saluted. Then she continued weeping. Yes, Arsène Lupin, while monsieur was sleeping, he seized him by the throat. Monsieur Berlat, a friend of my husband. The commissary asked, But where is Arsène Lupin? He leapt from the train when passing through the tunnel. Are you sure that it was he? Am I sure? I recognized him perfectly. Besides, he was seen at the Saint-Lazare station. He wore a soft hat. No, a hard felt, like that, said the commissary, pointing to my hat. He had a soft hat, I am sure. 
repeated Madame Renault, and a grey overcoat. Yes, that is right, replied the commissary. The telegram says he wore a grey overcoat with a black velvet collar. Exactly, a black velvet collar, exclaimed Madame Renault triumphantly. I breathed freely. Ah, oh, the excellent friend I had in that little woman. The police agents had now released me. I bit my lips until they ran blood. Stooping over, with my handkerchief over my mouth, an attitude quite natural in a person who has remained for a long time in an uncomfortable position, and whose mouth shows the bloody marks of the gag, I addressed the commissary in a weak voice. Monsieur, it was Arsène Lupin. There is no doubt about that. If we make haste, he can be caught yet. I think I may be of some service to you. The railway car, in which the crime occurred, was detached from the train to serve as a mute witness at the official investigation. The train continued on its way to Havre. We were then conducted to the stationmaster's office through a crowd of curious spectators. Then I had a sudden access of doubt and discretion. Under some pretext or other, I must gain my automobile and escape. To remain there was dangerous. Something might happen. For instance, a telegram from Paris and... I would be lost. Yes, but what about my thief? Abandoned to my own resources in an unfamiliar country, I could not hope to catch him. Ah, I must make the attempt, I said to myself. It may be a difficult game, but an amusing one, and the stake is well worth the trouble. And when the commissary asked us to repeat the story of the robbery, I exclaimed, oh, Monsieur, really, Arsène Lupin is getting the start of us. My automobile is waiting in the courtyard. If you will be so kind as to use it, we can try. The commissary smiled and replied, The idea is a good one. So good, indeed, that it is already being carried out. Two of my men have set out on bicycles. They have been gone for some time. Where did they go? To the entrance of the tunnel. There they will gather evidence, secure witnesses, and follow on the track of Arsène Lupin. I could not refrain from shrugging my shoulders as I replied, "'Your men will not secure any evidence or any witnesses.' "'Really?' Arsène Lupin will not allow anyone to see him emerge from the tunnel. He will take the first road to Rouen, where we will arrest him. He will not go to Rouen. Then he will remain in the vicinity, where his capture will be even more certain. He will not remain in the vicinity.' Oh, ho and where will he hide i looked at my watch and said at the present moment arsene lupin is prowling around the station at darnetal at ten fifty that is in twenty-two minutes from now he will take the train that goes from rouen to amiens do you think so how do you know it oh it is quite simple while we were in the car arsene lupin consulted my railway guide why did he do it was there not far from the spot where he disappeared another line of railway a station upon that line and a train stopping at that station on consulting my railway guide i found such to be the case really monsieur said the commissary that is a marvellous deduction i congratulate you on your skill i was now convinced that i had made a mistake in displaying so much cleverness the commissary regarded me with astonishment and I thought a slight suspicion entered his official mind. 
Oh, scarcely that, for the photographs distributed, broadcast by the police department, were too imperfect. They presented an Arsène Lupin so different from the one he had before him that he could not possibly recognize me by it. But all the same, he was troubled, confused, and ill at ease. Oh, Dieu, nothing stimulates the comprehension so much as the loss of a pocketbook and the desire to recover it. "'and it seems to me that if you will give me two of your men, "'we may be able to... Oh, "'I beg of you, Monsieur le Commissaire,' cried Madame Renaud. "'Listen to Monsieur Barlat.' "'The intervention of my excellent friend was decisive. "'Pronounced by her, the wife of an influential official, "'the name of Barlat became really my own, "'and gave me an identity that no mere suspicion could affect. "'The commissary arose and said, "'Believe me, Monsieur Barlat, "'I shall be delighted to see you succeed.' I am as much interested as you are in the arrest of Arsène Lupin. He accompanied me to the automobile and introduced two of his men, Honoré Massol and Gaston Delivet, who were assigned to assist me. My chauffeur cranked up the car, and I took my place at the wheel. A few seconds later, we left the station. I was saved. Oh, I must confess that in rolling over the boulevards that surrounded the old Norman city in my swift 35-horsepower Moreau Lepton, I experienced a deep feeling of pride, and the motor responded sympathetically to my desires. At right and left, the trees flew past us with startling rapidity, and I, free, out of danger, had simply to arrange my little personal affairs with the two honest representatives of the Rouen police who were sitting behind me. Arsène Lupin was going in search of Arsène Lupin. Modest guardians of social order, Gaston Delivet and Honoré Massol, how valuable was your assistance! What would I have done without you? Without you, many times at the crossroads, I might have taken the wrong route. Without you, Arsène Lupin would have made a mistake, and the other would have escaped. But the end was not yet, far from it. I had yet to capture the thief and recover the stolen papers. Under no circumstances must my two acolytes be permitted to see those papers, much less to seize them. That was a point that might give me some difficulty. We arrived at Darnetal three minutes after the departure of the train. True, I had the consolation of learning that a man wearing a grey overcoat with a black velvet collar had taken the train at the station. He had bought a second-class ticket for Amiens. Certainly my debut as detective was a promising one. Delivet said to me, The train is express, and the next stop is Montérolier Buchy in nineteen minutes. If we do not reach there before Arsène Lupin, he can proceed to Amiens, or change for the train going to Claire, and from that point reach Dieppe or Paris. How far to Montérolier? Twenty-three kilometres. Twenty-three kilometres in nineteen minutes. We will be there ahead of him. We were off again. Never had my faithful Moreau Lepton responded to my impatience with such ardor and regularity. It participated in my anxiety. It endorsed my determination. It comprehended my animosity against that rascally Arsène Lupin. The knave, the traitor. Turn to the right, cried Delivet, then to the left. We fairly flew, scarcely touching the ground. The milestones looked like little timid beasts that vanished at our approach. Suddenly, at a turn of the road, we saw a vortex of smoke. It was the Northern Express. 
For a kilometre it was a struggle, side by side, but an unequal struggle in which the issue was certain. We won the race by twenty lengths. In three seconds we were on the platform standing before the second-class carriages. The doors were opened, and some passengers alighted, but not my thief. We made a search through the compartments. No sign of Arsène Lupin. Sapristi! I cried. He must have recognized me in the automobile as we were racing side by side, and he leapt from the train. Ah, there he is now, crossing the track! I started in pursuit of the man, followed by my two acolytes, or rather followed by one of them, for the other, Massol, proved himself to be a runner of exceptional speed and endurance. In a few moments he had made an appreciable gain upon the fugitive. The man noticed it, leapt over a hedge, scampered across a meadow, and entered a thick grove. When we reached this grove, Massol was waiting for us. He went no farther, for fear of losing us. "'Quite right, my dear friend,' I said. "'After such a run, our victim must be out of wind. We will catch him now.' I examined the surroundings, with the idea of proceeding alone in the arrest of the fugitive, in order to recover my papers, concerning which the authorities would doubtless ask many disagreeable questions. Then I returned to my companions and said, "'It is all quite easy. You, Massol, take your place at the left. You, Delivet, at the right. From there you can observe the entire posterior line of the bush, and he cannot escape without you seeing him, except by that ravine, and I shall watch it. If he does not come out voluntarily, I will enter and drive him out toward one or the other of you.' You have simply to wait. Ah, oh, I forgot, in case I need you, a pistol shot. Massol and Delivet walked away to their respective posts. As soon as they had disappeared, I entered the grove with the greatest precaution, so as to be neither seen nor heard. I encountered dense thickets through which narrow paths had been cut, but the overhanging boughs compelled me to adopt a stooping posture. One of these paths led to a clearing in which I found footsteps upon the wet grass. I followed them. They led me to the foot of a mound which was surmounted by a deserted, dilapidated hovel. He must be there, I said to myself. It is a well-chosen retreat. I crept cautiously to the side of the building. A slight noise informed me that he was there, and then through an opening I saw him. His back was turned toward me. In two bounds I was upon him. He tried to fire a revolver that he held in his hand, but he had no time. I threw him to the ground in such a manner that his arms were beneath him, twisted and helpless, whilst I held him down with my knee on his breast. "'Listen, my boy,' I whispered in his ear. "'I am Arsène Lupin. You are to deliver over to me, immediately and gracefully, my pocketbook and the lady's jewels, and in return, therefore, I will save you from the police and enroll you amongst my friends. One word, yes or no. Yes, he murmured. Very good. Your escape this morning was well planned. I congratulate you. I arose. He fumbled in his pocket, drew out a large knife, and tried to strike me with it. Imbecile, I exclaimed. With one hand I parried the attack. With the other, I gave him a sharp blow on the carotid artery. He fell, stunned. In my pocketbook, I recovered my papers and banknotes. Out of curiosity, I took his. Upon an envelope addressed to him, I read his name, 
Pierre Onfray. It startled me. Pierre Onfray, the assassin of the Rue La Fontaine at Auteuil. Pierre Onfray, he who had cut the throats of Madame Delbois and her two daughters. I leaned over him. Yes, those were the features which, in the compartment, had evoked in me the memory of a face I could not then recall. The time was passing. I placed in an envelope two banknotes of one hundred francs each, with a card bearing these words, Arsène Lupin to his worthy colleagues, Honoré Massol and Gaston Delivet, as a slight token of his gratitude. I placed it in a prominent spot in the room, where they would be sure to find it. Beside it I placed Madame Brunot's handbag. Why could I not return it to the lady who had befriended me? I must confess that I had taken from it everything that possessed any interest or value, leaving there only a shell-comb, a stick of rouge dorin for the lips, and an empty purse. But, you know, business is business. And then, really, her husband is engaged in such a dishonorable vocation. The man was becoming conscious. What was I to do? I was unable to save him or condemn him. So I took his revolver and fired a shot in the air. My two acolytes will come and attend to his case, I said to myself, as I hastened away by the road through the ravine. Twenty minutes later, I was seated in my automobile. At four o'clock, I telegraphed to my friends at Rouen that an unexpected event would prevent me from making my promised visit. Between ourselves, considering what my friends must now know, my visit is postponed indefinitely. A cruel disillusion for them. At six o'clock, I was in Paris. The evening newspapers informed me that Pierre Onfray had been captured at last. Next day, let us not despise the advantages of judicious advertising, the Echo de France published this sensational item. Yesterday, near Buchy, after numerous exciting incidents, Arsène Lupin effected the arrest of Pierre Onfray. The assassin of the Rue La Fontaine had robbed Madame Renaud wife of the director in the penitentiary service in a railway carriage on the paris havre line arsene lupin restored to madame renault the handbag that contained her jewels and gave a generous recompense to the two detectives who had assisted him in making that dramatic arrest end of chapter four ah oh, oh, that lupin is such a clever gentleman anyway hey thank you all for listening so much so much for listening. Check us out, rate, review, subscribe. Go to pgttcm.com if you want to check out some of our old t-shirts. New t-shirts coming up soon. Just got to get that stuff done. You know, I haven't had any free time lately. Like, really, really, I've, I've been super busy. Anyway, check out uh, my other project, Johnny Smooth Skin. And also, why not check out Articulate Warbling, Zach and Laura. Over in uh, Brighton, England, they're, they're, they're doing their best, uh, watching movies, reading books, and uh, telling you what they think about it. All right, thank you so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you later with more Lupin. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.